turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 1. And, you know, there is a cost to standing against our culture, to, to standing against what our culture approves of or disapproves of. So if we disapprove of something they approve of, or if we approve of something they disapprove of, there is a cost. And oftentimes we think of that in the terms of, of relationship, right? It might cost us a relationship. People might not like us. People may not want us. Friends may no longer be friends. Family may uh, run away from us, walk away from us because of uh, what we think and believe and say. But there's also another personal cost to it, and that is abstaining from things that might bring us pleasure. What will we sacrifice, as it were, right? Sacrifice in air quotes, and not taking part in the things of the culture. Uh, There are TV shows and movies that we should not watch, and it might bring us pleasure and enjoyment, and it might be entertaining to us to take part in those things, but they stand opposed to the good things of God, and so we cannot entertain those things. Same thing with music. Music falls under the, under that category as well. What places, what parties and the like will we avoid, will we not enjoy, will we not be entertained by as a sacrifice, as a cost for following Christ? And this cost is especially to be noted in issues of sexual morality, sexual mores. Our culture would have everyone believe that sexual purity is a bygone idea. And that if you believe in that, you're a prude. And you're foolish to not engage in whatever makes you feel good, whatever that may be. And indeed, the fact that it makes you feel good must mean that it's proper. But if you are in Christ, you are called to holy purity. And that's what I want us to see this morning. If you are in Christ, you are called to holy purity. So today we come to our passage. We find that the call to us in Christ Jesus is a pleasing purity, a holiness that is a distinctiveness, especially in the areas of sexual mores. Let's turn to God's word and let us see God's will for us. Uh, And I'll read for us out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Remember that in the book of Thessalonians here, this first letter of Paul, uh, he is 
spent a lot of time thanking God for them, thanking God for their faith, and encouraging and exhorting them, saying, continue on in that, right? Uh, to, to say who they were, who they are, what they've been doing, and even who the missionaries were, right? Remember, we went and saw some of that, that the missionaries had a certain character among them. And Paul's been exhorting them, continue, continue in the faith. You're undergoing persecution, and it may be cause for concern that you'll abandon that faith uh, that you received, but don't. Continue on. And uh, the missionaries, again, encourage them, saying, we still love you. We have an abiding and deep love to you. We want to see you face to face, and we want to fill what is lacking. That's what he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And in the prayer that he offers up in verses 11 through 13, he says, he wants them, right? May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, right? He still wants to be among them because he wants to be able to instruct them. But as he cannot now be among them, he's going to do the next best thing. He's he's writing this letter to them and he wants to instruct them. And so the, the tone of the letter shifts here into direct instruction. Paul's going to give them specific instructions of things that are going on. And we don't get the sense in the letter that there's any particular error. We get that in some of Paul's letters, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Paul's dealing with very specific issues in the Corinthian church. It doesn't seem to be that way in Thessalonica, that there aren't so many specific issues. And so he's giving some general um, general encouragements, general instruction, uh, though there are some issues at work among them. Uh, they would be nascent problems and so he tries to head them off at the pass but we'll get into that as we go through the book but first he gives them urging instruction so let's look at that in verses one and two urging instruction he says finally then brothers we ask and urge you in the lord jesus right he says we ask and urge you brothers and sisters in christ we ask and urge you he he's pleading and encouraging them to some great end which we'll get into more in a moment but understand that this is a language of requests, right? This is a request to them. This is not an overbearing demand. Paul is not being harsh toward them, but what he's doing is he's kind of using the language of allurement. He's saying, I, I want you to do this. Not I, I make you, I'm going to make you do this, but I want you to do this. And he, this he says in the Lord Jesus, right? He says, I ask, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So what he is requesting of them is not like Paul saying, can you pick up the dry cleaning for me? This is he saying, this is what the Lord Jesus would have of you. This is this comes from God, not Paul, not Silas, not Timothy. And so as God commands, he could demand, right? As God commands, he could say, this is a demand from the Lord, do this or else. But instead, he is trying to encourage them to a godly, holy life. And we think about this even in the term or in the context of a child. How do you motivate a child? You can use the fear of reprisal. So the fear of punishment. Do this or else it'll go very badly for you, right? very poorly. Uh, or else I'm going to take all your Christmas presents back to the store. Right? That's, that's a punishment, right? That can be used as a method to motivate. But sometimes the method we use with children is a gentle pleading. Would you please? Uh, would you please do this or that? 
and understand that both are needed in due measure. Too much without the other uh, is going to be overbearing to some degree or underbearing, uh, so not giving the motivation that they really need. It's going to create an imbalance. And I pray that I, for myself as, as pastor, will do that well, will manage to do that well, that I will uh, with fierceness call you to do what Christ commands, but also that the call would be to you in gentleness and the meekness of Christ. And if I get out of balance, if I fail to do one or the other, please speak to me. But here is the sweet uh, urging of a loving pastor to godliness, right? That's what he says there, that as you have... Uh, as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, but you do so more and more. Right? This has been his manner. First Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 11 through 12. He says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, right? Like a father with his children, one of love, a loving relationship, but but also one with authority. So this is the urging instruction. He says that you walk to please God just as you're doing, do so more and more. They've already been taught by the missionaries how to do this, right? Just as you are doing. They've already received that as you have received from us, he says in verse 1. They've they've received it from the missionaries. They've lived it out. And so Paul's encouraging them, do so more and more. Be obedient to it uh, again and again. Don't neglect it, but continue on in it. And he goes on, he says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Again, the Thessalonians know what a pleasing walk is before God. They have been instructed, so they should have no doubt in their minds what God requires of them. And in case there may be something lacking, Paul does go on and explain some of the particulars, and we'll get to some of that in our passage this morning. But as true as it is that the Thessalonians needed to to walk in a pleasing manner before God, so too it is for us who are in Christ today. And what does this pleasing walk look like? Well, we'll see one specific example of that in our passage today. But I want you to understand that moral virtue pleases God and immorality does not. So what's moral virtue? Because that may seem like a strange way to speak in our culture today. We don't often, I don't often hear in the context of the broader culture us talking about moral virtue, maybe virtue singling, right? We probably hear that phrase a time or two, uh, especially when we look to something like social media where people get on and get outraged about something and then go do it themselves uh, or don't really care. That's all they do. That's all their interaction is they um, just get rage, Facebook rage, uh, or Instagram rage, you know, whatever, TikTok rage. I guess they do it to a song there, you know. Um, but what's moral virtue? And there's much confusion in our culture about what is morally good. Because our culture lauds evil. It praises evil and it shuns good. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but I'd say a good place to start. If you want to understand what is morally virtuous and what is immoral, look to the book of Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. We have both of them 
uh, contrasting one another, uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right, so what Paul helps us do there to the Galatian church, in the Galatian, uh, the letter to the Galatians, he says, here's immorality and here's morality. Here's moral virtue, here's moral good, and here's moral evil. And it would behoove you to undertake, to understand all of the fruit of the Spirit, what that means. But let's just for a moment meditate on one virtue given there one of the fruit of the spirit faithfulness so let's ask some questions here are you faithful do you value faithfulness when you make a promise do you keep it when you commit to something do you see it through or do you waver at the first wind of trouble do you abandon plans and friends when something more fun comes up do you shift your allegiance to someone or some cause as soon as it becomes more costly than you desire Because see, faithfulness, especially on that latter part there, faithfulness sees through even when it gets costly, even when it doesn't benefit us. For when we make a commitment, are we faithful to it? If we look to God, right? God the Father is faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. The Holy Spirit is faithful. And the command to you in Christ Jesus is be faithful. Faithful to God, faithful to your brothers and sisters in Christ, faithful to those commitments you've made, faithful to your oaths and vows, let your yes be yes and your no be no. How do we get these virtues? Well, as we see in Galatians, right, it's but the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit is doing in you is working out the fruit of these virtues. So the first thing that you need to do in order to have moral virtue, you need to be in Christ Jesus. You must seek God that he would grant you to be, for instance, faithful and have these other virtues and walk in such a manner, which is to say, practice these things, put them into action, all of which invariably means that you will have to pay a cost to live out these virtues in a world that is devoid of them. It's going to cost you something. But this is the urging instruction. Do so more and more. Walk in a way that pleases God. And indeed, as we continue in our passage, we we will need that sanctifying control wrought in us by God. That's in verses 3 to 6. Let's look at that sanctifying control, verses 3 to six. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Have you ever wondered what God's will is? Well, here's part of it. If you want to say, what is God's will? I want to know God's will. This is part of it. God wants for you, if you are one of his people, he wants for you your sanctification, that you would be made holy. 
His will is your sanctification. And the first question that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this, as I was meditating on this, is this. Does he have the power to bring about his will? Does God have the power to bring about that which he wills? Yes. He's omnipotent. All powerful. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. He says there, Isaiah 46, 9 11. Remember, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. What he determines, what God determines, he will do. See, we're not like that. We don't really understand what that is because what we determine to do may be delayed or we may be distracted by various and sundry issues, problems, and people. Right? Um, sometimes ADD kicks in. And we say, this is why I'm, I'm going to get this done today. I'm going to, I'm going to accomplish this today. And then as you walk through the house, you say, Oh, I need to do that. Oh, I need to do that. And before you know, the day's gone and you're like, I did not accomplish anything that I set out to do today. Not that any of us would ever have that kind of personal experience or knowledge of how, about how that works. Right? But what we determine, what we will, we don't always have the power to carry forth. But everything that God wills, will happen. So let us rest in that. So when we see that His will is your sanctification, He's going to do that. If you are in Christ Jesus, He is going to do that. But let us think about what is sanctification. Well, sanctification is the process by which we are made holy. It's a process. So to start there, it's a process, right? It's not instantaneous. Our salvation is instantaneous. Our justification is instantaneous. It happens the moment we're saved. We are justified by the work of Christ, and that's it. We're saved. There's nothing else that needs to be done in us to save us. But sanctification is a process. It's not instantaneous. It takes time for us to get there. We are holy. We're called saints, right? That's what it means to be a saint. Holy. But we are also being made holy. We could look to Romans 8 and we could see how we are, to, we are being made holy. We could look to 1 Peter 1 where we have the encouragement from Peter as he who calls you is holy, so you be holy. And we will be holy. We could look to Colossians 1, 21 through 22 and we see uh, there that we will stand before God holy and blameless and above reproach. That that's how Christ Jesus is going to present us. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will stand before God as holy. Is that because you are holy in and of yourself? No. It's the work of God in you. Again, what, is, what does it mean? It's the process by which we are made holy, but what does it mean to be holy? Uh, we could look at the word in a different way, right? Distinct. We could say we are distinct. We're set apart. What are we distinct and set apart from? the fallen world around us, the sinful world around us. To be holy is to be morally virtuous. It's to be pure. It's to be as God is. Right? God is holy. So 
This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. What he is saying is, this is the will of God for you, that you are holy as God is holy. How will he do this? How will he bring about, how will God do this work of his will, your sanctification? Romans 8, 28 through 29, a common verse, uh, a lovely verse. Too much often a coffee mug verse, which is like, you know, right, we stamp it on there and like, look at Instagram, uh, right? We do little fun photos, but Romans 8, 28 through 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you are in Christ Jesus, he will use all things to this great end, your sanctification. How does God use calamity, disease, and evil days? If you're not in Christ, if you don't believe, if you don't confess your sins and repent of them, then he uses calamity to get your attention. He uses the evil that we see in the world around us, disease and darkness, to get your attention, to awaken you to the worst reality that will be yours in hell in eternity. But understand this, that if you are in Christ Jesus, then all of the evil that befalls you is still yet used by God for this great purpose, your sanctification, that you be conformed to the image of his son. So every disease, that means this, that every disease, cancer, is a way for God to sanctify his people. Marriage is one of his means to sanctify his people. Singleness is one of his means to sanctify his people. Times of material prosperity is a means by which God sanctifies his people. Times of leanness is another. God uses all things to further his will in your life. That's what Romans 8 says. And that's what we must understand here of this verse, that this is the will of God and he will accomplish it. He will do it and he will do all that he needs to in order to accomplish it. But what is your role in sanctification? Do you have a role? Because if we look at salvation, right, justification, it is accomplished by a single person. God does the work of salvation. It is God from start to finish. God does all that is required. It is his work alone. He's the one who gives us the heart able to confess our sins. He is the one who gives us the ability, the will to even confess our need of Christ. And it can only be his work alone because if any part of our salvation was up to us, we would mess it up. If any part of our salvation was up to us, we would mess it up because of our sinful flesh. And understand, that's how deep sin goes. But sanctification is accomplished by two people. God and us. God enables us, helps us, empowers us, strengthens us, and works in and through us that we would be holy. But it is also incumbent upon us to walk and work out that which God has done and is doing. 
Paul here gives us one example. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's something for us to do, right? Abstain, stop, get away from it. And sexual immorality in specific, right? Abstain from sexual immorality. And the Greek word for that sexual immorality here is pornea. And that's just a general term for all different kinds of sexual immorality. And it would behoove us to understand a little bit about the context of the Thessalonian church. Uh, they are in Roman culture, and Roman culture is filled with sexual immorality. Culturally, uh, the sexual mores of Rome are not in step with the scripture, right? We, we have to understand that, that it was okay for a married man to have a mistress. And in some regards, it was expected that it was okay if a man had slaves that he could rape them and the slave had no recourse other than to accept it. That it was okay that those in the higher echelons of society to have sexual relations with children, that boys would be uh, groomed to that end. And maybe that there would be some kind of benefit to the boy. Added to this was prostitution, both of the four higher uh, variety and also of uh, cultic religious worship. God is calling you, brothers and sisters, to abstain from sexual immorality. We don't live in Rome, but we all, we too do live in a culture that sexual immorality is rampant. We see it everywhere and it's praised and glorified everywhere. There are certainly some of the same practices going on today. Your calling in Christ is to stay away from all these practices which are dishonoring to God and to one another. Again, there is broad acceptance in our culture of lust, adultery, premarital sex, abusive sex, rape, pornography, homosexuality, so on. These things are common in our culture, but they should not be maimed among the church. Why is that? Because we're a bunch of prudes? Because we just don't want to have fun. No, because what God commands is for our good. He created us with the goodness of sexual desire. So don't misinterpret what I say. Because often in the church, this has been the message. Sex is evil. That's not true. Sex is a good gift from God. But the context to enjoy that gift, there is only one context to enjoy that gift. And that is in a marital relationship between one man and one woman, one husband and one wife. This is what it was from the very beginning in the days of Adam and Eve. Go back to Genesis 2. You know, you're on page 2 of the scripture, unless your page numbers start, you know, back in the table of contents. But you're on page 2, and, and already you have this purpose of marriage seen. And it's how it should be today. No matter what other celebrities might say, no matter what you might see on social media, no matter what you may see on media, TV, movies, or otherwise. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he goes on and he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So what was said in a negative way, right, a negative uh, command, abstain, we now see here in a positive way, control. And there's some question here in this verse as to what Paul is commanding because it depends on how you interpret that word body or how you uh, translate it. It could be body or it could be vessel. So it could be what Paul is saying here is to control your own body, right? So have self-control. 
and you should control your body in holiness and honor. It is incumbent upon the man or the woman of God to control his or her own body. But it could also mean vessel. And vessel is a cultural idiom to say wife. So it could be that Paul is saying, have your own wife, but have her in holiness and honor. Uh, So to say something like the command could be, husband, treat your wife with holiness and honor. And either way you interpret this, what we see is the same, that there is a right and proper way to live. The call of God is proper conduct, walking in holiness and honor, especially, but not solely, in the terms, in the context of sexual relations. Let me say that again. The call of God is proper conduct, walking in holiness and honor, especially, but not solely, in the context of sexual relations. We could look, for instance, at Paul's letter to Titus, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Right, Paul's encouragement there to Titus is to remind us that we have been saved out of something. Ungodliness, worldly passions, lawlessness, to something. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Purity. Good works. Holiness. And so control in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, it says in verse 5 in our passage. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The contrast here is clear. Holiness and honor or passion of lust like those without the knowledge of God. And one of the marked differences between the Gentiles who do not know God and the Christian is one of control. The non-Christian is subject to all of the impulses of their natural flesh. They choose to sin out of their nature. And they would want it no other way. The Christian is different because by the Holy Spirit, they can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you can look at Romans 8 for that. The Christian is different because there is a new and overriding interest within us. We desire the things of God. And so a warning here for you. If you don't have desire contrary to sin, you may not be saved. And I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to unsettle you. But you really must consider the truth of the gospel. If you are in Christ, your greatest desire cannot be sin. Cannot be. His will is your sanctification. He's called you out of it. So what if you continue to struggle with sin? What if the passion of your flesh overwhelms you? What if you struggle with sexual immorality? There's really too much of the practical and the spiritual to unpack to do that. But I would say if that is you, uh, talk with me. And I would I would more than willing uh, to work those issues out with you. But I do want to offer this. If you are in Christ Jesus, His will for you is your sanctification. That's what we see in the scripture, right? He will sanctify you and he accomplishes all that he wills. However, or uh, or rather, 
Therefore, sometimes it's a very painful process. He may allow you to suffer greatly in order to awaken you to the realities of your sin. Not all suffering is because of personal sin. But don't neglect the possibility that God is using those problems that arise, those darknesses, those diseases, those destructions in your life as a way to remind you of your calling in Christ. God can, in Christ Jesus, forgive you. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, nine. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering, patient. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. And you will not suffer this forever. Though you may now struggle against the flesh, and you may suffer it for many years, but oh, there is coming a day when all sin will be put away with. When God will raise your corrupted flesh incorruptible, and you will never sin again. So one of our prayers as as Christians, right, is the same prayer we see at the end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Continue on in verse 6. That no one transgression wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger on all these things. And as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Paul continues here and says, don't transgress and wrong your brothers. And again, there's some question about what is he actually talking about here? Because the, the language transgress and wrong seems like it is talking about kind of like a defrauding in a business transaction. And so it could be that Paul is saying here, don't, don't defraud your brother in Christ. Don't use false scales, like right, uh, bad scales, weighty, weighted in the wrong direction. Uh, you could look at Proverbs for that, right? God hates that. He hates false scales. And certainly we understand that, right? We shouldn't defraud our brothers or sisters in Christ. But as we look at the context, right, the context we've been talking about is sexual immorality. And so another option to understanding this verse is Maybe Paul here is talking about adultery, right? Don't transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. Don't violate the marital covenant. Don't, don't defile the marriage bed. And certainly that would fit. Either way, what we see Paul talking about here is sanctifying control. Control yourself in holiness and honor in every sphere of your life. Because God's sanctification for you is not just about sexual morality, right? It's not just that he wants to say, save you and keep you away from sexual immorality. In all of life, he wants you holy. <clears throat> all sin, all sin needs to be confessed, repented of, and done away with. Because God does not call you to sin, he calls you to holiness. And understand that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. In every matter, God will bring judgment against sin. Hebrews 10, 26-31 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you do not believe in Christ Jesus, if he is not your savior, then judgment and fury of fire will be your eternal punishment in hell. But understand this too. If you are in Christ Jesus, God will bring temporary, temporal consequences to bear upon you. He may even cut you off from the land of the living. Just because you are saved does not mean that you will avoid the disciplining hand of God. Peter says in his first letter, in chapter 4, verses 17 and 19, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Listen to this. Listen to what Peter says. He quotes the scripture here. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter warns us here that there is suffering for the sinner. And the question is really one of what is one's final disposition in life? It is only by and through the grace of God offered to us in the work of Christ Jesus that we may yet stand in heaven before our God and worship him. Fear, fear you who put your faith in God. Walk in holy reverence before him. Abstain from sexual immorality. Practice sanctifying control for you have a calling to holiness. And let's look at that finally in verses 7 and 8. Calling holiness. For God has not called you, he has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God's calling on your life, Christian, is holiness, not impurity. God has not saved you so that you can continue on in your sin, so that you can satisfy the lust of your flesh. He has saved you to make a people for himself, a people to walk in holiness. The Christian calling is one of holiness. And that is not a popular sentiment in our day, let alone not even a popular sentiment, not just in our culture, but even in the church. In the American church, we do not see a calling to holiness. We see often a calling to do whatever makes you feel good, whatever seems right in your eyes. There are many who want to believe that their salvation sets them free from any standards. But that is the message of the world. That is the false gospel of this world. The world is the one who promises freedom to anything your heart desires. God's call to you is freedom from sin. Freedom to holiness. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you is there to this end. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both the will and to work for his good pleasure. And so, verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And here's a warning. If you ignore this instruction, if you ignore what I have raised from this text of Scripture, you are not ignoring Paul. You are not ignoring me. You are ignoring God himself. You are ignoring the Holy Spirit. If indeed the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you cannot disregard this. You must consider this. Holiness is not an option for the Christian. Sexual purity is not an option. It is a mandate. It is a God-glorifying calling and command. And understand that holiness is for our good. We were created to be holy as God is holy. Do you understand that? When God created Adam and Eve, He did not create them in sinfulness. He created them and it was very good. For they walked in holiness before God until they fell. God created you to walk in holiness. And understand this, you are being conformed to the image of His Son, to the image of Christ Jesus, who Himself was the definition of holiness. You want to know what it means to walk in holiness? Look to Christ Jesus. He's more than an example, but He certainly is an example. And this is not a burden for us. Understand that, right? Again, the, 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 the message of the culture is that to walk in holiness, to walk in the way that God calls you to, to follow His commands, that that is a burden, that that is unpleasurable, that that is anything but good. But walking in holiness is a blessing. Walking in holiness is a blessing because we are living out what God has created us to be. It is not a burden to be holy, but a blessing. Paul in our passage today is telling the church to stand against the cultural mores, that which they were once enmeshed in. Roman culture was in many ways similar to our own. Sexual immorality was rampant. What a field day the Romans would have in our own day uh, with Sexual, sexual immorality all around us with access to pornography in every home and in every pocket. Then, as is now, the call to you in Christ Jesus is to stand against the culture and to pursue a holy purity. God's will for you is that you would be conformed to the image of His Son, your sanctification. His will that is that you would walk in pleasing holiness before Him. It is His will that He will work out in the lives of his people, in the process of sanctification, of being made holy, is not always pleasant. There are times when God must prune us of our sinfulness. He will certainly discipline us for our sin. He will let us suffer the temporal consequences of our sin that we might recognize what it is and repent of it, be done with it. And if you call Christ your Savior, then you are called by Him to a holy purity. And if you have failed in this area, brothers and sisters, know that there is yet forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The blood of Christ is enough to cleanse us from all of our sins. But you are also called out of that sin. You are called no longer to live in it. We could look, for instance, at the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Verses 10 to 11, after those who accused walk away, 
as Jesus confronts them, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Go and sin no more. Go and walk in a way that is pleasing in God's sight. Be holy, for he is holy. There is grace enough in God to forgive you of all of your sins. There is grace enough in God to give you the power that you need to put to death your sins, to put to death the deeds of sexual immorality. There is grace enough in God, brothers and sisters in Christ. But do not take his grace for granted. Do not think that you can sin, that grace may abound. May it never be. And if you do not struggle with this particular issue of sin, of sexual immorality, understand that God's will for you is still your sanctification. And it may not be in this area, but he wants to make you holy in every area of your life. There are other areas in which you need to confess your sin before God and work in the power of his Holy Spirit to kill that sin and practice the pleasing holiness to which you are called. Some of you listening don't want to pay the cost of holiness you don't care that you sin. You are fine with the way of life that you have it now. And understand this. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Or Ephesians 5.5 5, For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The scripture is clear. Without God's working in you, by which you may be cleansed of your sins, by which you may be holy, by the cross of Christ, you will die in your sin and you will suffer eternally outside of God's kingdom. And so don't be fooled by the siren song of our culture. There are many around us who will say that as long as you are happy, nothing else matters. There are many who say that God loves everyone anyways, so why bother how you live? Make no mistake, such persons who fail to turn to God, fail to turn from their sin, will experience the second death. But you, as you draw breath, you still have time to repent. God has given you this opportunity to go to him and to confess your sin, to plead with him to forgive you for your sin, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from your sin. You must go to God and seek him. And once you do, once you have turned from your sin, walk in the pleasing purity to which he calls his children. Not that you may earn your salvation, but as an outpouring of the love of God in you. So let us seek God. Dear Father, we are so grateful for your work. Lord God, that you you do not save us and then send us to the wind, but you save us and you pursue us and you continue to show the steadfast love you have for us and that you desire for us to be who you originally created us to be. And you will remake in us that which has fallen. You will heal that which is broken. You will fix all of our sin issue. And oh, what a cost you paid to that end. Oh, what a cost Christ Jesus 
paid to suffer under your wrath to be made our propitiation that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. Oh, Father God, would you press the truth of that upon us that we may not trample underfoot the Son of God, that we may not outrage the Spirit of grace, but we might, even in fear and trembling, walk before you in holy purity, pleasing purity. Oh, Father, for those who do not know you, I pray that your Spirit might even now open their eyes to see, open their ears to hear, their hearts to believe, that you may be glorified all the more, that there would be more worshipers of you today than there were before. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And in the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.